Okay, good morning. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. We will be in the book of Matthew, chapter 23. If anyone needs a Bible, please raise their hands. I need a Bible. Matthew 23. Verse 13, I hope you're ready for this. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win, to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say whoever swears by the temple is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the, te- gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean, cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you were sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt, serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Bechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and her stones that who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen, gathers her chick under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you transform us inside out, Lord, that you just, with your word, Lord, pierce our hearts, Lord, open it up, cleanse out, Lord God, even the deep recesses that sometimes uh, we're not even willing to acknowledge that is there, Lord. And I just pray that uh, even as uh, your words, Lord Jesus, even as they were just so striking, and on the face of it, harsh, Lord, that they would do the work in our lives, that we wouldn't be uh, pointing to others, just assuming that these words were meant for someone else other than ourselves, Lord. This word was meant for us. It was meant for us in Boston here this morning, Lord, and at Calvary Chapel in the city. And I just pray that you do your work through your word in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you may be seated. Before we begin, I just want to let you know about the talent show. Originally, it was going to be this Saturday. There was a scheduling conflict with the hotel. And so it's going to be this Friday at uh, 7 o'clock. It's a lot of fun. We have uh, an action-packed agenda, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. So uh, please come out. And there's also going to be food there, uh, free food (laughs) Uh, that we uh, bring out just a spread and and we all sort of have a a party afterwards. So please come out. Also, men, I... Is it this room or in the Fenway? I believe it's in the Fenway. Where's Scott? Scott, is it in the Fenway? In the Fenway, that room over there. Then as well, we have... um, uh, I just want to remind the men about the men's retreat. Today is the last day, and so please sign up. It's always a, a blessing to go to the uh, men's retreat. I don't think this year we're, it's an overnight thing, so uh, uh, guys will be, uh, will be commuting back and forth, and, and so please sign up today. There will be someone in the back. Okay, Matthew 23. A friend of mine asked me this week what I was going to be teaching on, and I said, well, Matthew 23, where Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe to you who compass land and sea to win a single convert, and when you are successful, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Then I went on, and woe to you, Pharisees and scribes, you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside you are like dead man's bones. And he said, wow, that's what uh, Jesus said? Jesus actually said that? And uh, he was kind of blown away. Yes, he did. Sometimes the only loving thing left for God to do in our lives is to give us a dire warning. And if necessary, a warning that will make the hair on the back of our necks stand up. A warning that will just thump us hard enough to get our hardened hearts, uh, our deadened hearts, come back to life. He, he, he loves us enough 
uh, to do that. Believe it or not, this chapter is it's an expression of, of God's love. This past week, my wife and some of the ladies in the church went down to Maryland to a pastor's wives conference. And when I picked the ladies up at the airport after the trip, I asked them, you know, what did you learn from the conference? What did you take away uh, from it? And the first response that I uh, heard from them was uh, that God, if we're ever going to learn the way to, to, that God wants us to learn to, uh, to love others, if we're ever going to learn the way that God wants us to lo- love others, we first have to learn uh, how much God loves us. And that's what the, the women, I guess they drilled into them uh, this week at the pastor's wives conference. The more you learn how much God loves you, the more you will love others like God wants you uh, to love them. And the next day in my uh, devotion time, I was uh, thinking about what the women had said and you know, how do I learn how much that uh, God loves me? You know, what, how do I go about learning, understanding how God loves me? And it is very clear. The Bible has a very clear answer, and that's the cross. The cross. There is no greater picture of God's love than the cross. And, and I went on just in my devotion time, and I had just a real powerful time uh, with God. And I was thinking about the last couple months in our uh, study of the book of Matthew, where we have seen Jesus. He made his final trip to Jerusalem from his hometown. Uh, and he was going to Jerusalem where he knew that he was going to meet his executioners. He knew he was going to meet them there. And he knew that what waited for him in Jerusalem would be the most agonizing, the most torturous, humiliating death that anyone would ever experience. Do you know the Bible says that Jesus Christ was the only person who ever lived, the only living human being, who was cut off completely from God. Every living person on this earth, however much they may hate God or live a life opposed to Him, the Bible says they live under the God's grace. But when Jesus took on the judgments for the sin of the world, He was cut off from that grace. Father, Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he cried on on the cross. And he knew when he was traveling from his hometown to Jerusalem for the last time on or about the spring of 30 A.D., Jesus knew what was coming to him. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 and 19, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. It says he pulled his disciples off to the side of the road and he said, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. He knew what was coming. Even so, he marched resolutely towards Jerusalem, the book of Mark says. He, he, he was sort of 
you, you can just see his eyes on Jerusalem. And every, in the Bible, it's always going up to Jerusalem, not because necessarily you're coming from the south. In fact, Jesus was coming from the north. But uh, Jerusalem was, you know, you would go up to it, sort of on, on the top of the hill. And, and the picture is Jesus just marching towards Jerusalem. It says in the book of Mark that he was running ahead of everyone else, that people would looked on and, and saw what uh, what was going on? They knew. They knew that his enemies were there, waiting for him as well. And it says they were amazed. That's how much God loves you. That's how much He loves me. Nothing was going to get in between Him and the cross. He ran to that cross for you. So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem where he received with much rejoicing. He was received with much rejoicing, but the rejoicing was soon muzzled by his accusers. In Matthew, uh, Matthew chapters 21 and 22, they sort of lined up. They tried to entangle him. They had no, uh, no desire at all to give their life over to him, the Messiah. So they were trying to make up, uh, uh, justify themselves and entangle him in his words uh, they were all silenced one by one, and uh, eventually it says in verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. Now, anyone else in the world probably would have slipped away at that point, uh, having silenced the people who, you know, you've been told want to execute you. Maybe you just try to uh, quit while you're ahead and slip out the back door or something. Uh, I mean, he knew these were the very people who were going to orchestrate his execution. Uh, you, th- you might have thought he would have quit while he was ahead. Instead, he presses on and he delivers the most severe and thundering rebuke ever given in the whole Bible. This is not one of those, uh, one of those chapters that uh, make you feel warm and fuzzy. But it's amazing that he, he pressed on. Jesus did not shrink back from the cross. He didn't run away from it. He ran to it. Here in Matthew 23, he's almost provoking his accusers to make sure they don't shrink back from what they had determined in their hearts to do. That's how much God loves you. That's how much He loves me. If we're going to love others the way God wants us to love others, we must understand how much He loves us. Uh, He wasn't going to let anything, even the reluctance or the hesitation or the fear on the part of His accusers, stand between Him and an eternal relationship with you which could only be purchased on the cross. Now, as we read uh, through Matthew 23, it's critical that you keep one thing in mind. Although Jesus' words here are uh, just a thundering rebuke, uh, they were given with a broken heart. Look at how the chapter ends, verse uh, 37. Uh, This is how it ends. This is how he uh, finishes this withering rebuke, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you 
desolate. And so the picture here really almost is of a mother or father who has a, a son or a daughter, and they, they just love the daughter or the, or the, or the son so much, and, and yet they see over the, the lifetime of their child just going further, further away from God, more and more into a life of rebellion and, and sin and just sort of deeper and deeper into the muck and all the while the, the mother pleading, just pleading and pleading uh, to, to, to come back, uh, to turn away from uh, the life that they're in and only to eventually just have to witness the sin literally kill the son or kill the daughter. And here the picture in Matthew uh, 23 verses 37 through 39, it's almost like a, a mother looking at her fallen son crying out, Oh son, oh son, how much I wanted to, to gather you in as a hen gathers her her chicks, how, how much I wanted to just hug you along the way to, 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 to bring you into my bosom and, and bless you, but you would have none of, of it. And look, look what's happened. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's a picture of how much he loves, how much Jesus loves, how much he loves you, how much he loves me. And so these terrible, terrible words in Matthew 23 that he utters, he utters with a broken heart. Now, I don't know how many times I've, I've heard someone uh, ripping into another person with their words because of some disagreement of religion or faith or something that they're doing. And, and I'll see it happen. I'll ask a person, you know, do you really think you did that in a, in a Christ-like way? And, and so often the first thing I'll get is, is, you know, well, what about Jesus and the Pharisees? I mean, you know, he called them a brood of vipers. He called them serpents. He called them, you know, whitewashed tombs, the sons of hell. And, 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 and you know, and, and, and I'll ask them, I'll say, well, that's right, he did, but he did it with a broken heart. Let me ask you, did you have a broken heart when you were ripping in with your words that other person? Did you have a broken heart? Were there tears in your eyes? Like there were tears in the eyes of Jesus. No, as a matter of fact, I enjoyed every minute of it. <laughs> so, uh, not really, but you know, that's what Jesus, uh, that's, that was not the way uh, that Jesus uh, spoke to the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 23. He spoke with a, a broken heart. Anyway, I want to get, get into uh, a little deeper of what Jesus says in this chapter, but before I do, I want to point out something that just really uh, blew my mind about this chapter. Consider this. Matthew 23 was Jesus' last public teaching. Everything else he says from now on, he just says to a small little band of his, uh, his disciples. And uh, this was his last public teaching. What a finish, huh? You know? Uh, anyone remember his first public teaching? Anyone remember that? Matthew chapter 5? The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, his first public uh, teaching. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 on a mountainside in Galilee. The blessed, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. We call them the Beatitudes. First public teaching. Now, many believe that, uh, and the evidence of this is just striking, it's even astonishing that there's a direct link 
between this, his last teaching, and that, his first teaching. Uh, Those were the Beatitudes. Here, what's the word that he says over and over again? Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> and and, they, it, it, and, and they, they, it is believed, and, and it's just amazing when you start looking at it, that the, the two, he was deliberately and purposely linking these two. Now, the Greek word for blessed in Matthew 5 is the word makarios, which means to be supremely blessed. The word woe is the, is the Greek word ui. Ooh-wee, you know, sort of thing. Ooh-wee, you know. It's, and, and what it is, it, it's an expression of supreme unhappiness and anguish. The exact opposite of blessed is the word woe. Now, does anyone remember how many Beatitudes there were? Anyone remember? Eight. Eight. Guess how many woes there are? Eight. Now you really see how the two are related when you put up each beatitude, each blessed, up against each woe. What was the first beatitude? Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For they will inherit the kingdom of heaven, or for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the first woe? Well, let's read verse 13 of Matthew 23 again. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So the first beatitude is how to get into heaven. The first woe is about how someone stays out. Wow. You get into heaven by being poor in spirit, you stay out of heaven by being proud in spirit. Now, some of you may remember when we were going through Matthew chapter 5, uh, there are two Greek words for poor. One was the word penis or penis. And the penis were the working poor, a man or woman who they performed some sort of menial job and uh, and, and, but they didn't really have much money at the end of the day other than their food. Uh, they lived from paycheck to paycheck. Some of you may be thinking, yeah, that's me. I'm penis or whatever. But the word penis, uh, though, is not the word used here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, uh, when you see poor in spirit. Uh, the word for poor here in, uh, there in Matthew 5, verse 3, when it says poor in spirit, is the word patokos. Patokos means someone who's a totally destitute, a beggar, uh, someone who has no money. They're under sort of a mountain of debt they'll never be able to get out of. Uh, they wear rags for clothes, uh, and they completely rely on what others can give them in order to survive. Patokos, poor destitute. So to be poor in spirit or spiritually poor means that you have come to the place where you realize that you have nothing to offer God, not a dime to offer Him, not a dime of goodness. You're under a mountain of debt, 10,000 talents. Remember we met Remember we studied that, $10 trillion essentially. Your spiritual clothes are rags 
filthy rags. In other words, your most righteous acts are as filthy rags before the Lord. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's given the gospel in a nutshell. What he's meaning is that it's a man who's poor in spirit has reached the point in their life where they realize that, that all the work that was or is ever needed to work salvation in their lives was done on the cross when Jesus died for their sins. And a man or woman is poor in spirit when they realize they're, they're, they're completely destitute of anything, of any merit that they can offer God and they have to lay hold of the cross. If they, and that's their only hope of, of salvation. That's what poor in spirit means. Now, the first beatitude stands in, in like a polar opposite to the first woe, where, where again, Jesus says, Woe to you, uh, uh, Pharisees, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering uh, to go in. So if the first beatitude is, Blessed uh, are the poor in sp- spirit, for they shall enter the kingdom of heaven, the first woe again is, Woe, uh, uh, woe to those who are proud in spirit, for they are, shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Remember Jesus' de- description of the Pharisees in the first uh, few verses here in uh, Matthew 23. It says in verse 5, it says, but, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Remember what we said that meant. They just made a loud public display of their righteousness. Look at how much I pray. Look at how much I give. Look at how much I, you know, how earnestly I fast. And, and, and the cross was offensive to them. Uh, they were convinced that their goodness and their spirituality was more than enough to get them into heaven. They were not poor, but proud in spirit. Now, Nowhere is there a, a, a greater picture of the contrast between proud in spirit and poor in spirit than in Luke chapter 18. Turn with me there. Luke chapter 18. You'll actually see there a Pharisee next to a person who is poor in spirit. This is one of those verses I, I, I really like just bringing up in a, a message three or four times a year. Very well-known parable that we need to constantly expose to our heart. Verse 9, Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God help us when we're praying to ourselves. But anyway. The Pharisee stood up and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That is the difference between someone 
who is poor in spirit and someone who is proud in spirit. And when you look at this parable, the thing that is so striking about it is how deceptive pride is. You know, the danger of pride, you may have heard this before, is you don't know that when you're being poisoned by it. That's the most dangerous thing about pride. And it really takes a work of God to expose your pride to you and to put it underneath your nose and, and, and show you how smelly it really is. Some of you have, may have read the report recently of a, a high school on the Cape that was having a problem with the high school students using drugs. And they actually, it's the, everyone's worst fear in high school, they actually put an undercover cop enrolled a pretty young blonde girl enrolled in the uh, in the school as a student, and you know she's just buying drugs from a whole bunch of guys. Nine guys were busted selling this this undercover cop uh, drugs, and that came out a few weeks ago. Well, yesterday I was reading another report in the newspaper about Boston Latin, where my son Sam is, and. You know, from a worldly perspective, you've probably heard about Boston Latin. It's a very famous place, very competitive school, uh, really smart people go there. Its list of graduates is like the United States Hall of Fame, Ben Franklin, Samuel Adam, John Hancock, soon Sam Cole, you know, will be going right behind. Anyway, there's this article in the paper yesterday about some Boston Latin student who hacked into the school computers. Do you know what my first reaction was? Well, I'm glad my, you know, my son Sam goes to that school there than that other school where everyone's using drugs. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I felt the Lord speak to my heart. Excuse me? What did you say? What was I doing when I said that? What was I doing when I said, you know, I'd rather have Sam go to that school than, you know, a bunch of drug users? I was praying to myself, just like that Pharisee, just praying to myself, trumpeting, you know. It, 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 what, so what was it anyway that, what was the, the root of, of, of what I was saying? What was the root, what was it rooted in? Pride. My pride. Interesting contrast between a computer hacker and a drug user. I mean, a, a computer hacker is like, what a picture of pride, right? You know, some guy, you know, sitting in his private room controlling the world, you know, <laughs> that smug feeling, you know, his heart just rising up. A drug user, on the other hand, is someone who is getting to the point where they're poor in spirit, spiritually impoverished. Why does a person use drugs? Well, it starts off, you know, it's a great feeling, and, but eventually, every, you know what it turns into. You feel worthless. The more you use, the more worthless you feel. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have to repent of their drug use any more than a tax collector in this parable doesn't have to repent of being a thief. But the one thing about a drug user is that they're, they're oh so close to the kingdom of heaven because the, 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 the more they use, the more they realize how destitute they are. You know, a lot of times people show up at this church 
for counseling and 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 they've been using or or they've they they've just been you know they turned basically into a drunk or whatever and as much as i my heart breaks at the tragedy that's happening in their life i'm encouraged because they're getting pl- close to the place where they're on the brink of getting saved beating their breasts like the tax collector. Oh, God, have mercy on me. I'm worthless. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. What a contrast. Pride. Listen, Jesus rarely spoke out against those things that we typically think of as sin. Sexual immorality, drugs, alcohol. Almost overwhelmingly, when he addressed sin, he addressed what? Pride. You know why? It's not because he condoned alcohol abuse or sexual immorality. It was because of this. No one has ever been shut out of heaven because of drug or alcohol abuse or sexual immorality. But every person who has ever been shut out of heaven has been shut out for one thing. Pride. Pride is the fuel of unbelief. Pride is the belief that there is something about us that deserves God's favor, that deserves heaven, that, that, that just deserves God. Pride is the belief that our lives can be a substitute for the cross. And, 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 and so this amazing link between Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, and Matthew 23. What's the next uh, Beatitude in, in Matthew chapter 5? Blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. What's the next woe in Matthew 23? Next woe in Matthew 23. It says, woe to you, verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive the greater condemnation. Now, who was Jesus talking about in Matthew chapter 5 when he said, blessed are they that mourn? He was talking about people who mourn over their own sin, people who see the goodness of God and what an affront and how nasty their sin is when it's put next to the goodness of God and their hearts are broken. Contrast this with the Pharisees, far from mourning over their sin, they're sort of just looking on for, out for some opportunity to sin and piling it on. Devouring widows, you can hardly think of a more arrogant, proud, and wicked kind of lifestyle, right? I mean, the man or woman who is so full of themselves, they think they have a right to help themselves to the very least in society. And rather than comforted, what's going to happen to them? They're going to receive the greater condemnation. The Bible talks about rewards in heaven, and some getting more rewards than others. It also talks about a greater condemnation in hell. Pretty amazing link between the second beatitude and the second woe. How about the third? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, what was the third woe? This was a real woe, woe. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, which means convert, to win one convert, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. Meekness. Blessed are the meek. 
Meekness is a form of humility. A man or woman who is meek does not draw attention to themselves. They divert any attention that is directed to them. They just divert it to God. In other words, their life is like a signpost pointing to God. Oh, that all of us would get to that place where our life is literally like an arrow pointing to God or pointing, uh, pointing to Him, pointing to, to Jesus. How different than the person described in Matthew 23, verse uh, f- uh, 15 there, who is so obsessed with attention being drawn away from God to Himself, He'll travel land and sea to do it. Rather than inheriting the earth uh, like uh, those who mourn in uh, Matthew chapter 5, these men Jesus describes as sons of hell. A son of hell is a person whose inheritance is hell, eternity apart from God, a judgment they have earned by a life of rejecting God. The fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The The fourth woe, what is it? Verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? A man or woman who hungers or thirsts for righteousness is seeking a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Bible says that Jesus is our righteousness. But as we see in verses 16 through 22 there, the Pharisees were not interested in a relationship with God. They were interested in a man-made rules. Man is ever wanting to replace a simple relationship with the living God with, with rules. So if you swear by the temple, you're not bound by an oath. If you swear by the gold of the temple, you were bound. They made up silly things like that, then followed them and, and felt justified by following them and... They were just creating a religion for themselves in which they, not God, was king. They weren't, again, seeking righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They were doing precisely the opposite. The fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Now look at the fifth woe, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Wow. Is there any denying that Christ was linking these two teachings? You know, these scribes, they went through this enormous effort to obey the Old Testament law of tithing, giving 10% of their income, to the point they were giving 10% of their herbs. And so they, you know, can imagine with their razor blade or whatever, just parceling up, you know, herbs. Have you ever seen anise seeds, those things? They have them sometimes in restaurants. When you go on out, they're these tiny little things. I mean, I can't even imagine someone going, okay, one for God, nine for me, one for God, one, you know. I, I, how much trouble that would take uh, to do that. And, and Jesus says, he says in verse 24, he says, by doing this, you're straining out a gnat and you're swallowing a camel. I love that. You're straining out a gnat while swallowing a camel. I mean, you guys thought a supersized McDonald's Big Mac was big. I mean, how about a camel sandwich? You like a whole camel sandwich. But anyway, uh, that's what they were eating. Uh, According to Leviticus 
chapter 11, gnats and camels are unkosher. Jews were forbidden to eat either of them. Some of you may be thinking, does someone really need a law to, to, to not eat gnats? But yeah, I guess so. But anyway, gnats represented the, the smallest, tiniest, unkosher food, whereas camels were the largest. And anyway, at the time of Jesus, observant Jews would go through the greatest length to avoid swallowing a gnat. Actually, gnats, they used to be prevalent in wine cellars. And so what they did when they drank wine is they drank wine literally through a terry cloth. Some of them would put a little terry cloth over their wine goblet and drink it so as you know, to make sure they didn't swallow a gnat. And they were very observant at doing that, kind of like you know, parceling out the little anise seeds. And that's what they used to do. And so when Jesus here says you strain a gnat only to swallow a camel, he's meaning you're so careful to observe the most minute letter of the law down to the last seed, but you are completely ignoring the very thing the law represents, justice, mercy, and faith. So what was the camel they were swallowing? They They were ignoring love, love for God and neighbor, which summed up the law and yet they were ignoring it. Another one of those scriptures this morning that I tried to, to, to bring in at least a half a dozen years, for, uh, times a year. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul declares, Though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Brothers and sisters, you may go to church every Sunday. You may know a lot about the Bible. You may not curse or smoke or drink or do drugs. But if you're not loving, if you're not loving, the people around you, however unloving they may be, you're straining a gnat only to swallow a camel. That's what Jesus is saying. Let that be a word of warning to our hearts this morning. So, uh, Matthew chapter 5, the fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful. And, you know, what a link there is to Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, where he says, woe to you who are unmerciful. So do you see the link, the link between Matthew 5, the first public teaching of Jesus, and Matthew 23, the very last one? You know, isn't God's word amazing? Does anyone seriously think that this was a coincidence. Does anyone even think that Matthew knew what he was doing when he wrote all this down? Of course he didn't. He had no idea. There's only one who knew what was going on. That was the Holy Spirit uh, knew what was going on. He, he, he knew exactly what was going on, and he was putting it all to, together so that 2,000 years later, when we read this book, we'd say, Wow. This book really is written by God. Wow. You know, I, I need to believe God's word and obey it. And so Jesus continues on and it, with the, the 6th, 7th, and 8th Beatitude. We've run out of time this morning. I'll continue on them next week. But I, I want to leave you with this question. You know, why is Jesus doing this? Why does he begin 
his ministry, his public ministry, with just such a heartwarming, blessed teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and then sort of the, at the back end, the bookend at the back, if you will, it's woe to those who are proud in spirit, for they will be denied the kingdom of heaven. Why, why does Jesus do this? Well, you know, it's, it's a warning given to us in love, again, in love, of what can happen when we harden our heart to His Word. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3, when you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. You know, I assure you that some of these people who are hearing these words in Matthew 23 that three years earlier when they were hearing his words on the mountainside, blessed are the poor in spirit, I assure you, they were open to him at that time. They were open, didn't want to receive him yet, but they were open. But little by little, with every time they would hear his words, his loving words, his luring words, drawing them in, every time... They said, well, no, not now. Their heart hardened just a little bit more each time until they get to the point where they just, their heart's totally hard. This is such a danger in your life with Christ. Such a danger for any human being. I mean, I I think of just any, a simple invitation, you know, come to Jesus, repent, repent, and come to the Lord. And, and you know, the, you, the first time someone hears it, their, their, their heart just, you know, sort of shudders, you know, oh my, I, I really got to do this. I, I do, I do, I, I have to do it, but I, I can't do it now. Just maybe six months from now. I, I can't do it right now. And there's just a hardening. Like six months later, they hear it again, and, 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 and you know, I really got to do it, but I got to wait more. And just more of a hardening until eventually it's like they're hearing nothing at all. It's like even a thunderous rebuke like this, they're hearing nothing. And, and, you know, that can even to someone who has been born again, who has received Jesus, it can happen to you and me where there's some area of our life where the Lord's going, you know, you need to do this. Well, not right now. And, And pretty soon, there's just no effect at all. I mean, the Lord is throwing spears at that area of your life and it's just bouncing off that hard place in your heart. And so... Jesus came the first time. He, he, he said, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save it. But he was rejected, and he sort of leaves with a warning. And remember, in chapter 24, it's, it's, it, the main message is, I, I'm going to come again, by the way, and that time it's not going to be to bring salvation through my death, it's going to be for judgment. And so, uh, so really interesting in the war, and we should, again, need to expose our heart. Jesus, actually, his last teaching, his last public teaching, this warning to our hearts. And let it do its work on our lives this morning. Let's close in prayer. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your word, every bit of it, Lord, and and. I just can, I, I, I believe, Lord God, I can speak for everyone here, Lord. Let it do its work in our hearts. 
Let it break up that hard area of our hearts, Lord. If there's anyone here, Lord God, who has refused to, to, for you to have your way in some area of their, their lives, Lord, let the stake be just put down this morning, Lord God, and, and let them let go, God, by your grace. I pray the same thing for me, Lord. If there's any area of my life, expose it, Lord, that I would lay it down. And Father, I just, I just thank you so much for sending your Son into the world. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the courage of pressing on to the cross. Continue to show us how much you love us, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, God bless you, and if anyone needs prayer,